You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, well, good morning, Midtown family. So great to see so many people here this morning. So many people... That was a long coffee line. You guys are making good friends. I love the hospitality of our church. So fun to see y'all connecting during the break time. I love that we do that. I do see some new faces, so I just want to introduce myself. My name is Justin. get the privilege of serving as our associate pastor here, and we are going to continue our teaching series in the book of John. We've entitled the series Encounters with Jesus, because one of the things that's really unique, well, unique to uh, the book of John is he describes so often these one-on-one encounters that Jesus has with people. And it's people from all different types of backgrounds, including family members like his cousin John, including uh, prostitutes and people in adultery, including blind people and including religious leaders. And we get these little glimpses of these conversations that he has. And in each one, he's, he's both talking to the people about who he is and about what he came to do. And throughout the book, you're, giving, you're seeing all these encounters with Jesus are giving people an opportunity to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he's going to do or to not believe. In fact, I told you the first week when we kicked off this series that the whole book of John, John doesn't try to hide the ball on why he wrote this book. He is very plain at the end of the book. He says, here's why I wrote it. And here's what he says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe in that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Because he's not hiding the ball there. He's telling you right from the start, like, there are many stories that I could tell, but I've compiled these ones specifically for the purpose of hope that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing that you would have life in his name. In fact, the word belief, I told you, believe is is more than 100 times in the book of John. It's what it's about. And so we're constantly seeing these encounters with Jesus, an opportunity for each person Jesus encounters to believe or not to believe. That's what they get to decide to do. And the one we're going to look at today is very much the same. The guy's going to get a chance to believe or not to believe. And actually what Jesus is going to do, he's going to tell him that he can't do it on his own. He actually needs some outside help in order to believe. He's going to tell him that he needs to be born again. Now, this is one of the most famous passages in all the Bible in uh, John chapter 3, because it has made perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. You guys probably know it, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, right? If you're really old like me, then you would know that you used to see it behind field goal posts at all the football games, right? John 3.16, famous verse. But unfortunately, in this passage too, it's also got some pretty infamous verse, or actually more like an infamous phrase, and that's the word born again. What do you think about that? What do you think when you hear born again? Unfortunately, for some, hopefully not all, but for some, this word or this phrase has become uh, politically charged because in the 1970s and 80s, it became, uh, became like the born-again people kind of moved with the religious right and whether right or wrong, try to force their morality on the country. That's the way some people think when they hear the born-agains. They think, oh, the born-again people, like the political class, the born-again people, right? Sometimes people think that way, whether it was intended to be that way or not. 
Or even within religious communities, it can be not just a politically charged phrase, it can be like a religiously charged phrase. Like sometimes within the Christian community, you've got the Christians, but then they say when one of their friends gets fanatical, then they say, oh, well, this guy's a born-again Christian. Like he, he's like a super Christian. He's real fanatical about his faith. And so it carries with it kind of a fanatic kind of overtone, even within the Christian community, it can sometimes. And so what I hope to do today is help if you can withhold your skepticism, if you look at it as politically charged or religiously charged, let's actually look at what it meant. We're going to talk about what Jesus meant when he said that we should be born again. So suspend your skepticism of that word, and we're going to discover what it really means. And we're going to find out that it means, like I've titled this sermon, it's not religion. It means regeneration. It means regeneration. So let's look at this famous encounter with Jesus together. But before we do, why don't I pray for our time? Thanks, Lord, for inspiring John to, to give us a story. Uh, the only encounter with Nicodemus that we see is in this book right here. I pray that you would open our eyes to hear and to see, and that we would even be reminded of how we've been born again, or that some here this morning today would be born again. Open our hearts to your word. Fill us with your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start off with introducing who is is this conversation, who is this encounter with. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher and you've come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if it were not with him, if God were not with him. Let's make a couple observations just from what we see about who this guy is. You might be familiar with the story, but we learn a few things about Nicodemus. First, we learn that he's a religious man. He's a religious man because he was a Pharisee. And you'll see later, he's actually, Jesus is going to call him a teacher to the people of Israel. So we know he's a religious man. As a Pharisee, he would have done all the things right and followed all the rules. He would have known the scriptures very, very well, if not had most of them memorized. Outwardly, we know that they were practiced their religion very faithful and outwardly. We don't know where the heart condition was, but he would have looked just like a very, very righteous, respectable, religious man. Next thing we learn about him is that he was also, he had authority. He was a political leader too, because it said he was part of the Jewish ruling council, which at the time was called the Sanhedrin, where 70 men kind of governed not just the religious life, but under Roman rule, they actually governed the civil life of the, of the Israelites. And so he's both religiously, active. He's politically active. He's a man with authority and power. And then I like this next one that you learn about him just by, based on the question that he asks, you get a sense that he's discerning. He understands that, that, that Jesus has something special. He says, no one could do the miracles that you've done if they weren't from God. Like he's discerning and he's really open-minded by the fact that he actually wants to inquire about Jesus. He wants to meet him in the night and talk with him and learn from him. So you've got this guy that knows the scriptures really well. He's religious. He's got authority and influence among the whole people. He's open-minded and discerning. And one way you might say, this is like the perfect candidate to become a Christian, right? He's got all the background. He's got everything. He's going to be a big influence if he was a Christian. He does everything right, at least on the outside. He knows the scriptures. He's inquisitive. He wants to know about Jesus. Yet Jesus is going to tell him that you lack something. You're the perfect candidate, but you lack something. Do y'all have any people in your lives that you just feel like, you know, I always use the phrase like, that person would make such a good Christian. 
You know, I've got people like that in my life. I'm just like, gosh, I just wish that they would believe because they, they, they're such good people. I think about my next door neighbors. I won't say their names, but I love our next door neighbors. They're so kind. They're friendly. They, they just do so much for us. They're just great, great people. They've had us on their porch to have philosophical conversations. So they're open-minded. They're spiritually minded. They want to inquire about God. They're very influential. They have a big family. And I just think to myself like, oh, these, these guys would make such great Christians kind of like the perfect candidate, I would think. But as is for my friends, as was for Nicodemus, they lack something. They don't need religion. What they need is to be born again. They need regeneration, which is what Jesus said when he talks to Nicodemus next. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into into the womb to be born. Jesus says, I I get this from you, Nicodemus. I I can tell that you want to see the kingdom of God. Like you want to see heaven. You want to see the Messiah that you've been waiting for. I see this in you, but you lack one thing. You need to be born again. Now we get to our word, born again, right? If you could suspend your baggage, if you could uh, suspend your thoughts of it being a politically charged or a religiously charged word, uh, let me just try to tell you what this word really means. And in the Greek, it's the word anothen. And so Greek word anothen, and what it really means is not necessarily born again, but it means born from above, like an act of something coming down from above to regenerate your heart. You see the word used several times in the New Testament. Uh, some of the ways that it makes it real clear is like in James uh, chapter 3, he's talking, or chapter 1, he says, all good and perfect gifts come from the Father above. Or later on in James, he would say there's earthly wisdom, but there's also godly wisdom that comes from above. Or when Jesus was uh, getting um, persecuted and the authorities had him, he told the authorities, you have no authority except that which God has given you from above. Or I like to think about it this way. When the veil was torn in two, Mark and Matthew say that the the veil, when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Same word, from above, top to bottom. What we need is regeneration. We need it. Nicodemus needed a top-to-bottom situation. He needed God to intervene in his life and open his heart so that he might be born again. Yet he couldn't get his mind around it. Jesus is talking to him about heavenly things and how he needs something from above, but he can only think about it from this earthly way because he didn't need religion. He needed regeneration. Yet he's still thinking about it from an earthly way. So Jesus tries even harder to help him understand in the next verses. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, No one can enter the kingdom of God, so no one can enter heaven unless they've been born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asks. To be born from above... We need the work of the Holy Spirit that blows like a wind in our lives. Do y'all like wind? I can't stand wind. It's my least least favorite weather condition. And I'll tell you why, because I'm I'm like type A. I like to know what's happening, what's going on. I think this would be predictable. And wind is completely unpredictable. I'll be walking the dog sometimes, like right in my face. I'm like, darn it, I'm going to go the other way. You turn back around, like, wow, how can it go both, both ways at the same time? It's just annoying. Like, I want to know what the weather's going to be like, and wind does not cooperate. So it is with the Spirit. 
So it is with the Spirit and how He works in our lives. Now, some scholars think that when Jesus said that you need to be born of water and of spirit, that they were referring to uh, just uh, John's baptism of water and Jesus' baptism with the spirit, which that could be a good way to interpret it too, because uh, John actually said, I'm going to baptize with water, but one will come after me who will baptize you with the spirit. So maybe that's what those two words meant. Other scholars think that it just means water, meaning like, like when the water breaks, like just a natural birth and then a spirit birth, that you need a natural birth and a spiritual birth. Either way, the point is this. We need birth from above. We need a second birth. The second birth, the theological term for this is regeneration. I've got a definition here for you for regeneration. Regeneration is a sovereign work of God, the whole, God, the Holy Spirit, of granting spiritual life to each Christian, raising them from the dead, so they are now able to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. That's Regeneation. It's God's work from above. It's the Spirit's work in our life. It's the wind of the Spirit that moves and makes us receptive to receive the good news of the gospel. And then when we receive it, the regeneration is that we become a new creation. The old things have passed away. The new has come. We're a brand new person, completely changed from the inside out because of what the Spirit has done as we've been born from above. I'm going to see if anyone here knows this. My, my, my wife grew up in church all of her days, and I asked her if she knew this song, and she said she never heard it in Sunday school, but who's heard Bullfrogs and Butterflies? Yeah, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I didn't think about it. I'll say the words. It is Bullfrogs and Butterflies. They've both been born again. That's the fun. So your, your job is now to go, go home, Google it. Don't do it, don't do it right now, but Google Bullfrogs and Butterflies, and you'll find yourself a catchy little tune that was sung to preschoolers to help them understand what regeneration is. It's a tadpole that becomes a, b- a bullfrog. It's, it's a caterpillar that becomes a butterfly. That's regeneration. It's, it's, a, it's a whole new man, a whole new woman gets birth when you've been born from above, when the Spirit works on your life in that way. That's why we don't need religion. We need regeneration. We need someone to come and blow like the wind and open our hearts to him. And whether you know it or not, for those of you, most of us here who've put our faith in Jesus, whether you know it or not, that was the work of the Spirit. And when that happened, the spirit blew on you and you were regenerated. You were made a new man, a new woman at that instance. That's the work of God. That's regeneration in your life. Whether you're Dolly Fox, who was baptized up here and put her faith in Jesus at six years old, or whether you're Barbara Hawkins, who was also baptized that day and came to faith as an adult. That, my friends, is the work of the spirit. It's regeneration. It's a changing of your heart. And that's what he needed. We shouldn't be surprised at this. Because Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. And you remember when, when Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Messiah, when he finally gets the question right, he's always getting things wrong, but he says, who do you say I am? He says, you're the Messiah. <laughs> what does Jesus say? He says, well, blessed are you, Peter, but this was not given to you by man. It was revealed, not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but it was revealed to you by the Father in heaven. He was awakened by the Spirit. Or Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Like the Spirit has to work. And I love the way that Paul actually describes the way this happens in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And even, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So he starts by saying, if, if, if people can't see 
If Nicodemus, right in front of Jesus, can't see it, can't believe who he is and what he's come to do, if he can't see it, it's just because there's a veil. And the reason there's a veil is because there's a spiritual battle. The God of this age is blinding the minds of unbelievers so they can't see Jesus. His main aim is to keep us from seeing Jesus. But it doesn't stop Paul. He says that we continue to preach, for we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for his, his sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory displayed in the face of Christ. He's saying we continue to preach, not ourselves, but we keep, we keep talking about Jesus and keep talking about Jesus. We proclaim him, we lift him up in hopes that someone believe like when the light shines in the darkness. When God said, let there be light. He can do that in our hearts and renew us and regenerate us just like that. And so that's what we do. We tell others about Jesus and we leave the results to him. Now, I don't know about you, but some people in some camps, when they think about this whole idea of regeneration and no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them, they think, well, then why should we even talk to anyone about our faith? Like it's just all up to God. I'd say, no, it's quite the opposite. The fun part is knowing that the spirit can blow at any time in any place, is interacting with everyone in your life because you never know what God's doing. And you could be a part of the spirits working in their life. What a joy. How fun. I experienced that in a, in a pretty fun way this week. Um, y'all probably don't know this, but the, have y'all seen the He Gets Us campaigns? Like they have ads and billboards and online stuff. A few people thought, watch the Super Bowl. There will be one, there, will be one there. Anyway, it's just, I don't know how wealthy these people are, but they just created this huge campaign like nationwide. And what's cool about it is when people go to their website and they indicate that they're, they're hurting in some way or they're going through loss or they're grieving or they're lonely, they can fill out a form. And then where we as a partner church with He Gets Us, when someone fills out a form and they live in the Austin area, it gets kicked to me. And so then I get to contact this person that's random that I've never known that they just filled out a form. And so I have to say, hey, I'm Justin. This website kicked the thing to me. And in this case, the, the guy said that he was struggling with loneliness. I, I just contacted him. Honestly, about 25% of the people respond back only, <laughs> but this guy, uh, I didn't know if it was a guy or a girl. Um, well, I didn't want to say it's his name. So it's a, it's a gender neutral name. So I didn't know what to expect, but we arranged for a phone call. And so when I got on the phone with him, he just started telling me a little bit about his story and just how he was struggling and just wanted someone to talk to. And just like, man, this is awesome. I asked him what he did in his, you know, before he had stopped working at the time. So what did you used to do? And he said, I was a plumber. I was like a plumber for like 20 years. Now, what he didn't know is earlier that day, uh, I was over, I told you about Safe Families. We were over at the, the family that we're connected with, uh, helping her move into her house, and we needed a plumber. And we couldn't find one it, it, for a reasonable price. And so I said to this guy, I said, hey, man, you know what I find? I find that when I'm feeling down and lonely, one of the things that helps is to go like serve somebody. You want to come do some plumbing tomorrow? <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and his car broke down, and so I had to actually go pick him up. But we had this wonderful conversation and just talking about what God was doing. You could see the wind, the Spirit was moving, moving and connecting us. And he said he wants to come check out Midtown. So you never know. That's the joy. We don't not tell people about Jesus because God's the one that's in control and the Father can only draw them. No, we tell them, assuming that God is already at work and that he can draw them. Second reason why we don't just stop because we, because we need the Spirit to do the work. We don't say, well, then I'm not going to tell people about Jesus. No. One of the things that's so good about it is because the Spirit can only do it. That means the pressure's off. We don't have to do anything. We just present Jesus. 
and that the pressure's off. It's not up to us. We don't try to coerce anyone. In fact, if you were to go back into this passage, the verse one and two uh, before verse three here, Paul says, like, we've put off all coercive ways. We don't coerce. We, that's, we don't preach ourselves. We just preach Jesus because he knows only God can save. Only God can shine his light out of the darkness. But we, that means the pressure's off. It's even more fun to share because if people believe or they don't believe, it's not up to me. It's a joy to do it. And finally, I'll say on that front, because the spiritual battle is raging like that, the most important thing that we can do is pray. Like, you have to pray. We have to be praying for the people. That's why we went through the whole last practice that we did was bless. And bless starts with, begin with prayer. We've got to be in prayer for people. So Nicodemus, let's go back to him here. I think that Jesus knew that the winds of the Spirit were blowing in that conversation on Nicodemus. And so now he's going to be pretty bold. And he's going to tell pretty clearly, especially to a religious leader who should understand this, he's going to tell pretty clearly both who he is and what he's come to do. Let's look at who he is and what he's come to do. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you about earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven except the one who's come from heaven, the son of man. Jesus looked at him and said, like, as a religious leader, you, you should have known some of these things. Like, you should have known about the new covenant. When Jeremiah 31, and he prophesies that, that there's going to be this new covenant. In the new covenant, you're not going to have to go to the law. The law is going to be written on our hearts. There's going to be an inward change. There's going to be a regeneration. You should, have, you should have known this, but you don't see So Jesus goes pretty boldly to say, I'm going to go ahead and tell you a little bit about who I am. And he says that he's come from heaven, that he's been there, that he's been there, and that he uses a prophetic word, the son of man, something that would have just shocked all kinds of prophecies into this Pharisee's mind, knowing that that was a bold claim, a prophetic name for the coming Messiah. There's some debate as to why Jesus says we. If you notice in the the language, it kind of changed. He says we. Like, we testify, but you haven't believed. And some people think when he went to the we, it was maybe like meaning we, like me and my disciples, like when we testify to you. Others, though, think, and I think this is the better interpretation, that the we is Jesus referring to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that we have been testifying that you don't believe. I like that interpretation better because he actually is telling him, I've been there. No one has gone there except the one who's gone to heaven and has come back, the Son of Man. He's telling him as clearly as he can to a Pharisee, here is who I am. He's boldly telling him who he is, and now he's given him a chance to believe. Are you going to believe? Like I said, throughout the book of John, it's Jesus revealing himself and affording people the opportunity to believe or not to believe. So he's told him, here's who I am. I'm the Son of Man, the one that's come from heaven. I've seen it. I've been there. And you're the one that's wanting to go there. I know what it's like. And now I've come to earth and now I've told you who I am. Now I'm going to tell you what I've come to do. In verse 14 and 15, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now you might not be familiar with this Moses and the snake story. Some of you I know are, but I promise you that this Pharisee, Nicodemus knew the Moses story. (laughs) He knew it. 
I'll tell it to you. In Numbers chapter 21, uh, the Israelites, as they were prone to do, start grumbling. They're in the desert, and they start grumbling against God and grumbling against Moses, complaining that they don't have enough good food or enough good things to drink. And so in God's mercy and judgment <laughs> and le- trying to lead them to repentance, he actually then sends snakes to start biting people. And these snakes start biting people, and people start dying. They come to their senses and realize, oh, man, we messed up. They go back to Moses and say, we confess this was wrong. Please help us. Pray for us. Moses goes to pray. And when he's praying, God tells him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a bronze snake, hammer out a snake, put it on a pole, lift it up high. And then whoever gets bit by a snake and looks to this, looks to this snake will live. They won't die. Do you understand why Jesus would say, son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him? Does it make sense? Getting a picture for it? Yet we don't know if, if Nicodemus got it. He would have known the story. Easy for us to figure out, those who have been regenerated, us who the Spirit worked on, where we saw it, we looked up to Jesus as he was lifted up on the cross and we put our faith in him. But Nicodemus was still a little bit in the dark. What Jesus was saying is that, like the bronze snake, he would be lifted up on a cross and that all who look to him will believe and have life, eternal life in his name. He told Nicodemus who he was. I'm the son of God that's come to earth. I've told told you what I've come to do. I've come to be lifted up on a cross that all who put their faith in me might believe. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. He didn't come to start a religion. He came to give us second birth, to regenerate us. All we need to do is believe that he's Messiah and put our faith in him, the son of God, and believe in his name. That's the conclusion that John reaches. He records this conversation that he has, and then what John is prone to do, we'll come in, and then he'll kind of do like a summary statement and say like, here's what I get from the story. So either he either overheard it or Jesus told him about the conversation, and then he goes to sum it up with, now we can go to our famous verse, John three sixteen. John says, after hearing this story, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. After years of insight, walking with Jesus and his teachings, witnessing his death, his resurrection, having Jesus teach them some more, John gets it. He understands what Jesus meant and what the whole conversation ended like with Nicodemus. He is the son of God. He came to be lifted up on a cross to die. God loves the whole world. He wants everyone to believe in him. He's come to save, not to condemn. That's what John gleaned from this. God is love. He so loved the world that he's willing to give up his son. Jesus is love. He so loved the world that he'd be willing to die. Now anyone who looks to him can have life and not be condemned. Remember again, this is why John wrote this letter. He wrote this letter so that people would believe. He's presenting them now with what what happened, summarizing this conversation, making the point very clear. Yet he says this about the verdict in the next verses. This is the verdict though. Light has come into the world, but people have loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives 
by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what they've done has been done in the sight of God. His verdict is that Jesus is the light. The light's coming to the world, but some people have left darkness. Some people don't believe, and they need the Spirit's quickening. Whenever I think about this passage, I think of this phrase. Maybe it'll stick in your head like it's, like it's stuck in mine. There's two kinds of people. There's people that are going to be born once and die twice. And there's people that are going to be born twice and die once. People that are born once and die twice are those that were born. They're born of the flesh. They're spiritually dead. And they'll physically die. But then they'll face what Revelation calls a second death, which will be the eternal death. They're born once, but they did die twice. But there's others. And God has reached into their hearts, who have put their faith in Jesus, that are born twice. They're born physically, but on the day of their faith, their regeneration took place, and they're born again, alive spiritually. And then they're only going to die once. They're only going to die physically, but they'll live forever spiritually. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Now, we don't know certain exactly what happened with Nicodemus here, but I think that there's hope that he actually did come to believe because the only other two times we see him in the book of John, uh, one time in John chapter 7, uh, the Sanhedrin is trying to, to, to come against Jesus and, and he stands up for, before them and says, you should hear him out. Like everyone just need to slow down, slow your roll. Like everyone should hear him out, continuing to be curious. And then when Jesus' body was taken down from the cross, he and another religious leader, Joseph, were the ones that took his body and wrapped his body. I hope that we get to see Nicodemus in heaven. I hope that he came to believe and that God did a regenerative work in his heart like he's done in so many of ours. Now, it would be pastoral malpractice when teaching this famous passage if I didn't give anyone who's not put their faith in Jesus a chance to do so right now. That would be mispractice, right? (laughs) can't do that. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus, maybe you feel the wind of the Spirit right now in your heart, and you say, yes, today's the day. I'm, I'm going to look to him, lift it up. Like that bronze snake, I'm looking to him for the forgiveness of my sins. You can do that. If the wind of the Spirit's blowing, you can do that right now by just praying a simple prayer. And I'm going to pray a prayer, and if you want to do that, you can just pray it silently in your heart after me, okay? Let's pray that. Father, thank you for your great love for me that you would send your only son. I confess that I'm a sinner in need of your grace. Today I look up to Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I receive your free gift of eternal life in his name. Amen. If you prayed the prayer for the first time today, you're born again. Regeneration has happened. Second birth. You're born from above. Anothen, born from above. The second birth, now you only have one death. Praise the Lord. For those of us who have done that at other times in our life, at a different period of time of our life, one of the best ways that we remember what Jesus has done for us and, and look to him again like the bronze snake is just to take communion together. So I'd like to dismiss our ushers to prepare us for communion. And as I do, I just want to kind of sum up this passage um, in a couple quick bullet points, because I think it just offers so much clarity on what it takes to receive eternal life and what it says about God himself. 
What does the story teach us about God's kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? It's the place where God lives. It's the place where he dwells, where he wants us to dwell with him. How can a person enter into the kingdom? Well, they must be born again. What's the role of the Holy Spirit's for entry into the kingdom? It's the regeneration. It's the second birth. You guys can go ahead and and distribute the communion. What's the role of the human being to enter the kingdom? It's simply to believe. I skipped the role of Jesus. Sorry, the role of Jesus, number four, is his role is just to be lifted up. His role was to die for us. The role of the human being is just simply to believe. Look to Jesus, call on his name. How does Jesus know about these things? Because he came from heaven. He came from there. And what's the heart of Jesus toward his people? That's that he wants them to be saved, not condemned. What about God? Let's look at this next slide and see what it says about what you learn about God. You have the next slide, Jenny? Cool, thanks. First, we see that God is approachable. I mean, he welcomes this conversation with Nicodemus. Isn't that awesome? God's patient. He's willing to converse with people who don't get it. God's truthful. Uh, He points out where Nicodemus is getting it wrong. God likes to reveal himself. Jesus told him who he was and what he had come to do. God is so generous that he would be willing to give his only son to save. God's merciful because he sent his son to save the world, not to condemn it. And then our God is a loving father. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. As we remember what Jesus gave, let me give him a minute just to quiet your heart and remember your story of how the spirit regenerated you. Think about what God did to make that way for you. Think about that day. Give you a couple minutes of silence here, a couple moments. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.